0: My name is Will. If you're visiting with us and are just joining us for the first time, I want to welcome you here. Uh, Thanks for worshiping with us. Hopefully, you can stick around. Um, There's a time of fellowship after the service in the Fellowship Hall, and we'd love to get to know you and and get to meet you. We are uh, continuing along in a series in the book of Revelation as uh, Elder Andy has prayed for, and today we come to Revelation chapter 20, which before I ask people to stand and read this, i just give you... Uh, Sort of a heads up that in the book of Revelation, the the chapter 20 is probably the most difficult passage to interpret. Not just in Revelation, but maybe uh, one of the hardest passages in the entire Bible. But I think it could be a really life-giving story and vision of what the destiny of the people of God could be. So with that said, if I could ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, We like to do this at New Life as a, a sign of respect and reverence and an act of worship. I'm going to read the entire chapter of 20 revelations 20 starting with verse 1 to verse 15 and this is god's word for us today friends john the, the apostle john he's writing this and he says then i saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain and he seized the dragon that ancient serpent who was the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7 says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and book, books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Just as a, by way of preface, always remember, as you kind of began to look at the book of Revelation, that remember, according to the commentators, Revelation is a picture book and not a puzzle book. And if you look and try to understand and to extrapolate and delineate all the details of the finite numbers and the sequence and chronology of the events that we see in Revelation, you're going to run yourself into the ground. It's trying to paint a picture for you of this wonderful vision of those who are in Jesus, and this is your destiny. So it's not a puzzle book, it's going to be a picture book, and in some ways, when we address chapter 20, it is the hardest passage in the book of Revelation, and one of the reasons is because we're trying to figure out, what is this thousand years? Is it literal, or is it figurative? Is it something that happens in the future, or is it something that we experience today? And I'm going to try to address that because we have clear convictions of what the thousand years is and when it happens. But we are also concerned about what does it mean for Christians in the church here today? What difference does it make for people like you and me? And so before we get into the theology, I want to make a case that this fundamentally and absolutely has every point of relevance for you today. And so I'm going to cite an article here throughout the message in the beginning as well as the end. It was in The Atlantic. It was written by Julie Beck, and she's a senior editor at the time. And there was an article that she wrote, What Good is Thinking About Death? And that's exactly what this picture shows us, even in the picture of last week. It's a picture of life, but it's also a picture about the end times, and it's about death. And I agree with what she says to some degree, because she says the only antidote to death is immortality. And the reason it's important for you and I to understand this is because whether you're a Christian or not, because this isn't a Christian perspective, she says humans are naturally going to deal with the reality of death. It will naturally be a response that we have by virtue of the fact that we're just humans. And according to this article, there's different perspectives, but on the one hand, especially in our day and age, in a consumeristic world, the way we deal with the idea of death is that we delay the thought or we numb ourselves to the reality that we're mortal. And that means we shop a lot more, we go on vacation, we indulge in vices of this world, whether it's physical intimacy and alcohol, but there's a lot of consumers out there in an economy in which there's an anxiety about death that has run amok because there's so many choices and so many activities that we can indulge ourselves in, so we basically numb ourselves through the busyness and the, the joy and the goodness of this life. The other approach that people generally think about or approach when they want to address the idea of death is that they're trying to instill meaning in their life. So rather than numbing yourself, you want to instill significance. And then you begin to think on this side, OK, I'm going to pass from this world. You think about in this sort of existential crisis, what did my life really mean? So you've to, you begin to attach your life to things that you think will last longer than you. That means you care more about family, patents that you discover, books that you write, culture that think that you think you contribute to and last even longer. And you try to think of big picture perspectives on life that will give you meaning, saying, I'm going to lose my life here, but I pray that something I contribute in this world will have meaning, and then that makes you feel a little bit better in life. I'm not opposed to this, but what I'm trying to offer you here in this picture of Revelation 20 is that either way, indulging yourself and numbing yourself or trying to instill meaning in your life when you think about the future fall really short of what Christianity has to offer. There is so much more for those who are Jesus when you look at the millennium that helps you to deal and face the realities of death but also instills a vision and a purpose and destiny that gives you absolute, eternal meaning and consequences to your life. And so I want to look at this just exactly the way the chapter is broken up. Three sections here. One, we'll look at what exactly is a 1,000 years Secondly, how is the devil defeated? How is Satan bound? You know, how did we put him in prison? And what does that mean for today? And then thirdly, books are really important. Books are really important. And for the youth students who are thinking, oh, my parents always say that, but this is a different book that we're talking about. So we're gonna look at the thousand years, what is it? How is Satan bound? And then books are really important towards the latter or the later part of the end of chapter 20. So let's look at this together. What is a thousand years? This is going to be, I'm, I'm trying to simplify this as much as I can. There are a lot of sophisticated arguments for this. I'm just going to pick a couple that I think were the easiest but the strongest arguments for what the thousand years is. So if you look at verses one through six, we automatically know that a thousand years is something important to this chapter. Verse two, Satan is bound for a thousand years. Verse three, after a thousand years, Satan was then released. By the way, it shows you that someone puts him in prison, someone releases him, so there's a higher authority. Verse 4, Christians who die in triumph, glory, and victory will be raised again with Jesus, and they're going to reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 5, the dead come to life after the thousand years ends. Verse 6, it says again, Christians will reign for a thousand years. So there's a lot in here. There's a lot about Satan being defeated. There's a lot about peace and prosperity, about Christians and martyrs who die and they reign with Jesus. And when Christ comes back after a thousand years, Christians will rise or people will rise from the dead. What does it all mean? Two simple questions that we'll address. One, is a thousand years literal or is it figurative? Secondly, when does a thousand years happen? Very simple, literal, figurative, and when does it actually happen? And personally, I think that the easier question to answer is whether the thousand years is literal or is going to be figurative. And for me, it's clear that the thousand years is absolutely symbolic, figurative, metaphorical, basically saying this is going to be a long time. And this is why I think it's going to be symbolic and more metaphorical in its nature. Because one of the truths about the book of Revelations, even the most, the, the most uh, staunch and um, strongest advocates of what we call dispensationalism, even they'll agree that Revelation is a very symbolic book. You can't read this as a literal book. It's apocalyptic literature. It's trying to bring symbolism and a picture. That's why it's a picture book and not a puzzle book. And so, for example, a lot of what Revelation talks about is going to be metaphorical or symbolic. Revelation 7-4 is an important passage, and it says there, 144,000, when you do the math, are those who are going to be Christian. But 144,000 certainly can't be literal. The 1260 days, the times, the times and half the times, the 200 million mounted troops, all of the sevens that you see in the book of Revelation, the seven is symbolic of perfection, the twelves, the fours, the numbers are all symbols. Symbols and imagery are not literal. And beyond the numbers, you look at the story and the picture that's trying to paint for you. There's a prostitute. There's a beast, a second beast, a pregnant woman, a bride. Like, we're the bride of Jesus Christ, but we're not literally the bride in some level. There's a groom. Someone eats a scroll. Seven heads, ten horns, fire coming from two mouths of two witnesses. Jesus killing people with a sword from his mouth. Blood as high as horse's bridle for 200 miles. It conveys that this is a powerful, just, and in some level, an adventure that has end-time repercussions. But none of this is really going to be literal. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not true. When it says that Satan is a dragon, it doesn't mean literally he's a dragon, but it does mean Satan is fierce. There really is a devil. When it says there's a judgment and Jesus will come by a sword from his mouth, it's not talking literally swords, but Jesus will come, and there's going to be a sword of the Spirit, the truth of his revelation in which he'll judge the people in their beliefs. So it's true in the sense it's historical, but it's not literal. We have an expression in the Bible, in Revelation, that gives us symbolism and metaphors, poetry, to communicate the truth in a more profound way. So I absolutely think that the 1,000 years is going to be symbolic. Jesus saw all of this, or John saw all of these things. It's not that they're untrue, but they just point to something historical and real, but done symbolically. Even when it says that dra- the dragon was chained up in the abyss, that's not literally a dragon, Satan is not a dragon in the core of the Earth. He's not chained up in the middle of the Earth, so that it makes sense, all things consider that most likely the thousand years is going to be symbolic. OK, Moving to the second question: When does it all happen? And then we'll try to bring this together to say, this has some relevance for your life. When does it happen? Um, I thought long and hard about trying to explain this, so I'm just going to throw it out there uh, basically in 10 seconds, and then we could discuss this more offline. But there are basically three views. One is this thousand years happen. Two views say the thousand years happens in the future. You have a view that's called pre-mill, and that basically means pre, referring to Jesus first, and then millennialism, which is the millennium, which is where we get the Greek for a thousand. Jesus comes first. And the 1,000 years of peace and prosperity where Jesus defeats Satan happens after Jesus' return. The other other perspective is called post-mill. Post means that the 1,000 years happens first. Satan is bound. There's a prosperity of the Christian church. There's a peace and a flourishing of human life that we have yet to see. And then after the 1,000 years, Jesus comes back at the end. So, either you have Jesus coming first in a thousand years, or the thousand years first, and then Jesus comes second. Either way, pre mill and post mill, it's all about the future. What I think the Bible talks about, and what's more consistent, I think, with Reformed tradition, is something called a mill millennialism. It's not that we don't believe in a thousand years, we just think that the thousand years is symbolic, it's metaphorical, and we believe, and I believe that the Bible is teaching us that the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ that Revelation 20 is talking about is right now. Satan is bound right now. Jesus reigns in glory right now. Christians and martyrs who have died for their faith have been raised spiritually, and they're with Jesus, and they're already with Jesus Christ reigning up in heaven right now. So the thousand years is essentially from the first coming of Jesus on the cross to the second coming of Jesus whenever he returns, that time period in between is going to be the thousand years. And all the truth and all the glory and all the peace and hope that we have of, described to us in Revelations 20 describes our current, present circumstance. And then you're thinking, how in the world is that true? There's so much heartache and death and injustice and how is it that Satan is bound? Isn't it true that the Bible says beware of the deceiver? That's all true, that's why the second point will talk about what it means that Satan is bound. But our view here, according to the Bible, is that the millennium, the thousand years, is right now. And here's why I think so. Let me try to argue my case, and there's so many ways to take this, but I'm gonna take a central argument and a point. Because some people, whether you're pre mill or post mill we will read, essentially, Revelation as a a chronology. So chapter 19 happened first, and then chapter 20 happened after 19. Now, the reason I have a problem with that is because in chapter 19, it seems like there was a cosmic last battle. Jesus came in finality. He judged everyone permanently. So it seems like the battle was done. Satan was already defeated back in chapter 19. So if it's chronological, when you come to chapter 20... There's a problem there because in chapter 20, it says that Satan was bound. And if the final defeat of Satan happened in chapter 19, what does it mean that Satan was bound in chapter 20? Now, so for example, in 19 verse 17, an angel stands, calls to the birds. They gather together for the great supper of God. And the birds eat the flesh of kings, generals, mighty men, horses, riders, flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. That seems absolute. That seems comprehensive. That seems final. Jesus defeated Satan. There's final judgment. So then if chapter 20 happened after all that, then what's the point of binding Satan? And the purpose of binding Satan in chapter 20 is basically this. It's so that he doesn't deceive the people. Why would Satan need to be bound if there's nobody left to deceive if because judgment already happened, they're either punished in hell or Christians go up to heaven back in chapter 19? So if you're following with me, there's a sort of a logical confusion here if you think that 19 and 20 happen chronologically. I think rather what makes sense is that you understand Revelation and it's not linear. Revelation happens in circles, and it sometimes goes back into filling out the details of the first circle. They call it judgment cycles. So there's a cycle of judgment here, and there's a second one here as you read Revelations, and there's a third one that comes along. And sometimes when you get to the second and third explanation, it goes back to the beginning, and it says, hey, I'm going to fill in some of the color. In fact, when you look at the last battle in chapters 16 and 19 and 20, it's literally called the last battle. There's an article that says the, which means that 16, 19, and 20 – are probably talking about the same end-time, cosmic, last battle. That's why I think that the millennium, and thousand years that we are experiencing is what Revelation 20 is talking about. The thousand years, the age of triumph. It began when Jesus came into this world. And by his death, resurrection, ascension, he ushered in an age of power and glory in the age of the spirit that's never been seen. Now this is the church age stretching from Jesus' first coming to his second. That's the millennium. It's not literally a thousand years, but it's going to be a metaphor, a symbol. And so we're in this millennium now. It doesn't mean that we don't believe in a thousand years. we believe that there's a long time in which Jesus shows himself to be victory, victorious, and we get to participate in that. And if you read with me here verse four, let's read this together before we go on to our second point. Verse four says, "Then I saw." Thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, what does this mean? This actually gives an answer to many of us who lost loved ones. When we think about martyrs and missionaries here today. What happens to them? This is your answer. Whether it's Bob, Sarah, Joan, whoever it is, your neighbor, what happens when they pass away? Well, if they're in Jesus, they believed in the gospel. Verse four is the answer. They're in, in heaven, reigning and judging the world with Jesus right now, because we're in the millennium. Actually, the throne is a dominant theme. It's a dominant image in the book of Revelations altogether. Now, if you read through Revelation, you scan the book, from chapter 4, verse 2, and onward, throne or thrones are mentioned about 32 times. The whole book, actually, of Revelation is structured around a series of thrones and throne room scenes. Chapters 4 and 5, chapter 7, the opening verses of 8, chapter 11, verse 15, chapter 16 through 19, even 20. The throne room scenes, they punctuate, they highlight, and each time we see ourselves in the book of Revelation, there's a throne of God. And there's an anthem of praise, or there's a, a, a taste of victory for those who believe in Jesus. God ascends in his son Jesus and reigns on high, and martyrs and Christians who pass away, there's a hope that they are with him in heaven, reigning in security. And though there's a sense of justice here that we won't get into, but martyrs who are killed for their faith, you're saying, well, that's such a tragedy, and it is. But for those martyrs and missionaries who are killed for their faith, they rise again to in heaven, They reign with Jesus in the millennium, and they execute judgment on those who rejected Jesus and murdered the church. So there is a sense of really a clear, strong sense of justice and vindication by Jesus Christ as our judge. And that should give us a level of hope. That's the millennium. We are living in it now. We live in the age of the Spirit. Jesus reigns on high. The peace and prosperity that we get a taste of is the peace and prosperity that we have right now in Christ Jesus. That's why Ephesians says in chapter 1, every spiritual blessing has been given to you. That's why you have every power and resource in heaven to conquer every temptation in your sin. The power of sin has been broken according to Romans chapter 6. All of that is because Jesus ushered in the millennium in his death and resurrection when he first came in the Gospels. And every issue that you deal with in this life, every addiction, every mental health issue, every marital issue, every parenting issue, every financial issue, it doesn't mean that it's easy, and it doesn't mean that it goes away, but you're living and approaching the sufferings in your life from the perspective of victory of Jesus over, because you, at some level, are all millennials. (laughs) We live in the millennium now. Jesus reigns on high. And this leads us to our second point. How is Satan bound if we're living in the millennium now? Well, read with me verses 2 to 3, and I'm going to roll down and read verses 7 to 8. And he sees the dragon, that's Satan, that ancient serpent, referencing Genesis, who is the devil and Satan, two different perspectives on who he was, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. See, that's the purpose. Why was he bound? Right there in verse 3, so that, a purpose clause, he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And in verse 7 and 8, he says it again. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. The number is like the sand of the sea. So we see from here that one of the reasons Satan has to be bound is specifically so that he doesn't deceive the nations from the truth in the gospel. Here's how I understand this. One of the truths that I think the Bible and Revelation is trying to teach us is that when it talks about nations, I think there's a strong case that the nations are talking about Gentiles. Gentiles or anyone who's not Jewish. Because in the Old Testament, God established a relationship with Jewish people. Later on, through the Great Commission, it expands over to the ends of the earth. That's basically saying God comes to the Jewish people, then expands out to the Gentiles. And oftentimes in the New Testament, the Gentile world is referred to as the nations. And so here, what we're talking about is that Satan has to be bound so that he doesn't deceive the Gentiles. Because when you look at history, Satan's power over the nations of the world is now not the same thing it was during the time of the Old Testament. Satan was much more powerful in the Old Testament than it is today. And you're thinking, well, that's pretty crazy because Satan seems pretty, pretty bad here today because there's a lot of injustice, a lot of deception. And you're absolutely right. But I'm just saying that in the Old Testament, it was probably worse. Satan was let to be much more free in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was limited to one particular social location, one ethnic group, Israel, the Jewish people, except for a few Gentile conversions like Ruth. The Gentiles as a people group were basically excluded from the kingdom. So taken as a whole, the Gentile nations, according to Psalm 107, sat in darkness in the deepest gloom. Even the prophets such as Isaiah saw a day when the Gentiles would flow into the kingdom, Isaiah 9:42 42 and 49. But that was after the first coming of Jesus into the world. In other words, this is what I'm trying to say, friends. The basis for your evangelism, the basis for missions, the reason Jesus gives the Great Commission to go out and to disciple and make disciples of all nations, the very reason that we have the power to go out for missions is because Satan is already bound in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, he still is out there. He's influencing but it's almost as if you think of a boxing match and he's really going into the final round and Satan had a knockout blow and he's really tipsy and he's really woozy and he can't see anything except a bunch of stars. He's still standing up and throwing these weak punches, but just a moment before he finally falls down because Satan upon the cross of Jesus already delivered the knockout blow. And because of that truth, evangelism and missions has never been as powerful As it is today, especially compared to the Old Testament when Satan was coming out from the corner in round one, full and fresh and healthy. We're battling a Satan that's already been defeated and is about to be knocked out. We're engaging in missions in such a way that Satan is bound so he can't deceive people in the way that he used to. So they're much more open theoretically, biblically, to the gospel going out into the world. And so there's a basic application, friends. Evangelize. You think it's hard and you think it's fearful and brings a lot of anxiety? Of course it does. But we live in the age of the spirit in which evangelism has way more of a chance to bring someone to church and to Christianity because Satan has been bound. Let, let, me, let me make my case, hopefully, to convince you from the Bible itself. Now, when the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons in the Gospels, by the Satan of power, Satan. Jesus replied, "How can anyone enter?" In Matthew 12:29, "How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off the possessions unless he first ties up the strong man?" Now, the strong man is going to be the metaphor for Satan. How can anyone carry off the possessions unless he ties them up? The expression "ties up" is the same word, "bound," in Revelation 22. Jesus in the gospel has bound up, tied up the strong man. Luke chapter 7, verse chapter 10, verse 17, and 18. You know that passage. The disciples go out and they evangelize. And what does Jesus say when they come back? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan's falling is probably another expression of his being bound because the age of the Spirit is here with Jesus. John chapter 12, 31 and 32 There are certain Greeks that came to Jesus. It triggered something in the mind of Jesus. If there were Greeks wanting to see him, it can only mean that Satan's kingdom is beginning to fall and being pillaged because Jesus says, if Gentiles are coming to me and asking who I am, that means Satan must be bound. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But when I am lifted up from earth, men will draw to me by myself. And that verb there, driven out, Of Jesus, or rather Satan, is the same root word as Revelation 23, he threw him into the abyss, which speaks of how Satan was consigned to the pit. Matthew 10, 6, when Jesus told his disciples they must go to the lost sheep of Israel, this was the inclusion of the Gentiles after Pentecost in Acts 2. Satan held the nations in blindness and unbelief. There is no church in Africa or Asia or Europe or even the Americas at that time. Satan's power is currently restrained because he's been bound. He's a strong man that's been tied up. He saw him fall like lightning. He fell to his ground. All around us, we are seeing the fulfillment of the cry of Psalm 28. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And the reason that's being fulfilled now is because Satan has been bound in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everywhere in the gospel, Satan has been bound. He's been dethroned. And there's both verbal but also thematic connections to what we see here in Revelations 20. We are more empowered, friends, than ever before in the history of the church to evangelize that coworker in your office, to bring your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus to the church, to talk to the soccer mom of your friends who's the mom of your kids' friends and tell them about Jesus. We are more than ever empowered to plant churches and support missionaries through MTW because Satan has been bound. He's tipsy. He's about to fall over, and the age of the Spirit in the millennium has been released. And as hard as it is and as much as temptation as we face in this world, Satan does not have the same level of power. One way to think about this is that, before I finish off on the last point, is that you know, a lot of times when people sin, they tend to, they tend to blame shift. To blame shift their circumstances or people. And so sometimes in certain circles of Christianity, they always blame Satan. You know, I gossiped, I lied, I stole and cheated. Oh, well, Satan made me do that. But you have to understand, because Satan is bound, it means this. The dominant focus of your spiritual life in terms of conquering, the main actor is your very own sin. Satan is a minor character. And that's what Jesus has done both on the cross. He's redeemed your heart, and he's defeated Satan. And this leads us to our last point. If any of this makes sense, it tells us that books are really important. Evangelism and missions leads to books. Two books in particular in verses 11 to 15. But read with me verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So in other words, there's two types of books. There's a book of deeds, and then there's a book of names. There's a book that shows everything that you did in this world. God is writing literally everything that you did, every thought, every skeleton in the closet, everything that you did, God wrote that in a book. And you know what? He's a very type A, detailed type of God in that sense. He knows every deed. But there's a second book. And it's a book of names. The first book of deeds, everyone's going to be in that. The second book of names, only the chosen ones are going to be in there. The first first book of deeds is going to be Christians and non-Christian, all of humanity. The second book is going to be a family tree because it's the book of life. Because no one may know what you do in the privacy of your own heart and thoughts, but God knows, and your sin is recorded in the books, may think it's even hardly worth a second thought, but God has marked it. It's there permanently in the book. It's recorded. It's there. He wrote it down. You know, perhaps you've measured the value of your life by just comparing yourself to other people. Saying, that person has more attention than me. That person has more success than me. That, that parent's kids have kids that are smarter than my kids. And children, you're thinking, my friend got into a greater school than I did. Or that person got more popularity at school than I did. And that's okay. That's understandable. But the challenge is, is that when you always measure your life against worldly standards or your friends and your neighbors, the problem and the challenge that the first book tells you is that do you ever measure your life against the book of eternity, the holiness of Jesus, by which God is writing everything that you've done that falls short of this. And he's writing everything about that. Does that matter? Does that book and standard matter to you? Because when you read the book of deeds and all that you've done, when Jesus comes back and you have to get judged, I wonder what the verdict will be on your life when Jesus opens up the second book of names. Be holy as I am holy. That's in the first book. Without holiness, no one will ever see the Lord. When measured by the standard of a perfect, pure, holy character of Jesus Christ, I wonder what the verdict will be over you. Because the book of Romans says, No one is righteous, not one. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And once you open up the Book of Deeds and see everyone's names in there and all that you've done, I wonder what the verdict will be when you open up the second book in the Book of Names. Is your name going to be in there? Is your name going to be listed? Does your life now reflect that your name is going to be in the Book of Life? Now, there's a book written by Ernest Becker called The Birth and Death of Meaning. You know, it's basically... Uh, I don't know much about it, but it's, the, it's basically the basis of the article that I referenced in the beginning of the sermon from The Atlantic. Um, they call it, I think it's psychology, terror management theory. It's basically how do you deal with that? So either you indulge yourself and numb yourself, or you find significance and meaning that transcends yourself. You know, there's different ways to approach this. But Ernest Becker in his book that kind of led to that sort of uh, psychological theory was basically saying, why do people do what they do? And Becker offered an answer to that question. He said people do what they do a lot of the times to basically address their fear of death. He argues that most human action is either taken to ignore and avoid the inevitability of death, or there's a terror of absolute annihilation that creates such a profound anxiety in people that they spend their lives trying to make sense of their lives. So on large scales, they look to societies and they build symbols. That's why the laws of our land and the religious meaning systems and the cultural beliefs and the belief systems tend to explain the significance of life and we believe in all that. They define what makes life good. They define what life could be and its characteristics and skills and their talents, extraordinary. They reward those who find certain attributes within this worldly system so either you indulge yourself or you want to try to find meaning by dedicating yourself to something bigger than yourself. But then he concludes this. The only antidote to death is immortality. And so terror management theory holds when faced with the idea of death, people turn to things that they believe will give them immortality, little or otherwise. And that's why sometimes we have idols because we look at these idols and we think they give us immortality, money or success, relationships. Truly back in the Atlantic, And what is good thinking about death? She says this, Americans are arguably the best in the world at burying existential anxieties under a mound of French fries and a trip to Walmart to save a nickel on a lemon and a flamethrower. She's saying that we are a culture, essentially, that doesn't necessarily think too deeply as much about the consequences of death or the millennium that we see here. Your life has yet to begun for those of us who are in Jesus. But I think there's a different answer. I think there's a different answer than what Julie Beck offers us here in terms of positive thinking and trying to control your behavior. The answer lies in the book of life. John sees another book, doesn't he? Just another book, not a book of deeds, but a book of names. He calls this book in verse 12 the book of life, and then in in verse 15 the book of life, but its fuller title has been given back in chapter 13, verse 8. In that book, in verse 8 of 13 says it's the book of life of the Lamb who is slain. The book of the life of the Lamb who is slain. So you notice the difference between the verdicts delivered with those who go to hell and those who go to heaven. So if your name is in the book of deeds and you're wondering, is my name going to be in the book of life? The only difference between the verdict of different people is that those who are in the book of life are in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. It's not that those who are acquitted have no sins or misdeeds when they're written in the book of deeds. They're just as guilty as the rest of humanity. The difference is that our names are written in the book of life because of the lamb that was slain. It's they that have taken Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus who was best judged but judged himself upon the cross. Jesus who's condemned for you and took your guilt and your shame. And all we have to do is to receive So if you want a verdict that says not only are you guilty because you have the book of deeds, but now you are righteous and holy and justified, and you want to be in the book of names, the only difference is because you gave your life to the lamb that was slain. And those are the people who reign with glory in Jesus now. Those are the people who experience all the blessings in the heavenly places. Those are the people who have the destiny that's pictured for us right now. A thousand years years—that's only an appetizer of what the world will be for like us when we're brought into the very kingdom of God with our Savior, standing before God, our Father, worshiping Him, fellowshipping with one another, glorifying in Him as we continue to serve and to love one another. Friends, let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you give us a picture